Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with all of you. If, if I missed you coming in and you're new here, my name is Ken DeLay, serve as a senior pastor. Glad you can join us as we are working through the book of Matthew together. We're in Matthew 24, if you want to open up to that passage. I just finished listening to an audio book on the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, if you were alive during that time, no doubt you can remember that time. It was a very uh, transformative time in our history. Up until that point, the Soviet Union had, had been a dominant world force for decades, from the October Revolution in the 1917 to being a key part of winning World War II. Uh, but having won World War II, then Europe was divided along the lines of those two armies, and the Iron Curtain fell across Europe, and freedom was locked out, and people were locked in to that side of the wall. Khrushchev and the Kremlin and the KGB shouting their way through the 20th century. Yet for all the shouting, the end came rather quiet as it just kind of dissolved over a number of years. And the Berlin Wall fell, and people were allowed out, and freedom was allowed in, and the hammer and sickle flag was lowered from the Kremlin. It was the end of an era. It was the end of an age. And what we're going to be looking at this morning is the end of an era and the end of an age. We're going to be looking back a little further than the fall of the Soviet Union, and we're going to be looking at something far more significant than that as well. What we're going to look at this morning in Matthew 24 is really the fall of the age of the temple, the age when, when God's presence was available on earth in the temple in Jerusalem, the age when the people of God lived in the land that God had given them, the promised land under the leaders that God had given them. His kingdom was not going to fall, but it would be transformed. And it would look very different in this new age and in this new era. And so the passage before us is a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem, of the fall of the temple, of this era-changing, age-changing time. Let me set the scene, because this is a complicated passage. Uh, I'm going to actually be reading this morning out of the NIV. Normally, I'm in the ESV, but I think this is going to give us a little bit more clarity for this passage as we make our way through it. We're going to be looking at a, a sizable chunk of chapter 24, but let me just set the scene by reading a few verses at the end of 23 with you. So we'll read the end of 23 and just the beginning of 24 together to set the scene. So... Read along with me as I pick up in verse 37 of Matthew 23, the very end of 23. This is Jesus talking, and he's just got done rebuking the religious leaders of Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you 
desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple, was walking away with his disciples when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? God's word. Okay, so this is the kind of scene setting passage for the rest of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So this is happening right outside Jerusalem, kind of in Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem as Jesus leaves. He's just finished a conflict with the religious leaders of Jerusalem that took us in Matthew 21 and 22 and 23. And this is now his response to all of that conflict. And what we see in this brief passage is that he walks out of Jerusalem walks out of the temple and goes over to the Mount of Olives. Now, the first time you read this, and maybe the 10th time you read this, you see this as kind of historic narrative. It's telling us what Jesus did. Absolutely. It's telling us what Jesus did. What we should be aware of is that he is deliberately reenacting something that happened once before. And this happened back in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was was given a vision of kind of looking down on Jerusalem, and he saw the glory of God in the temple. And he saw the glory of God lift up above and out of the temple. And then he saw the glory of God depart from Jerusalem to a mountain to the east. And this was to prepare for the reality that the Babylonian invasion was just about to happen. And a righteous God was abandoning his people to judgment. And here is Jesus. And he's leaving the temple. And he's walking out of Jerusalem. And just like before, goes to the mountain to the east. And stops there and looks back on that city. And he pronounces judgment on the city. And it's a terrible judgment where not one stone would be left on another. This, if you were here several weeks back, we actually talked through the Roman invasion of Jerusalem when they came in and sacked the city. What we're reading here is Jesus' prophecy, roughly the year 30, 34 ish AD, of something that will happen in the year 70 AD. So for us, this is past. We're looking back. For them, this was future. And you can imagine that it impacts us a little differently than them, right? Like, for us, it's like, at, you know, interesting history, right? For them, it's, it's as though I were to stand up, and, or the Lord were to stand up and say, so America's going to fall soon. Oh, yeah? I have an interest in that. Could you tell me when? And that is actually what they ask. They actually say, oh, You're prophesying that not one stone will be left on another? Tell us about this, please, Lord. And so we get to verse 3, and verse 3 sets up the next couple chapters of Matthew because they say, tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, their question is a little bit confused because they are 
a little bit confused. They're just basically looking out ahead in history and saying, you know, can you tell us something of what's coming? But their question does have two basic parts. One, the first one, when will this happen? You just were talking about Jerusalem falling. When's that? Like, do you have a date or some way that we can know when that's happening? It would be awfully nice to know when that's happening. So that's the first part of the question. When will this happen? And then their second part of the question, they say, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So this part is kind of, okay, and Jesus, like, when are you coming back again? When's the end of the world? When, when, when is everything going down out there in the future? Now, we don't know what they were thinking. They might have been thinking that all this was one event, right? That Jerusalem was going to fall and Jesus would return at the same time. Like, they, they don't know. Like, we do. We, we can categorically say that is not how that goes because uh, we have hindsight and we can look back, right? The fall of Jerusalem was going to happen in their lifetime. Uh, the coming of Christ was not. So now Jesus begins to answer their questions. And to the two questions, he gives two answers. And so the passage we're going to look at this morning, beginning in verse 4, talks about his answer to the first question. The first question being, when will this be? When is Jerusalem falling? When is the end of the temple age? When, When is all this stuff that you were just talking about going down? The second question we're going to get to next week um, looks at, tell us about the second coming of Christ. When's the end of the world? What's going on with all that? So we're going to take these one at a time. So this morning, the uh, passage where Jesus answers about the end of the temple age is verses 4 through 35 of Matthew 24. So follow with me. I'm going to go ahead and read that. Uh, And let me just tell you, uh, this is This is prophecy, and prophecy is hard to understand. So let's just kind of wade in together, and we'll unpack it as we go along, okay? So they had just asked, when will this happen? Jesus answered, verse 4, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed, Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. 
Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's Word. Now, you, like me, may have read this before and maybe even thought this while I was reading it right now and thought that this refers to the end of time and the second coming of Christ. Um, If you have thought that, you stand in a tradition of Christians who have thought that and yet... I believe this refers to the end of the temple era, not to the end of the world. And I want to help argue for that for a moment so that you can see from the text why I think that's what this is talking about. And once we've kind of established a meaning, what does this mean? We'll talk about how we can apply this together. And by the way, if at the end of this, you disagree with me and you still think this talks about the second coming of Christ, just know I, am, I will still love you because I love people who are wrong. It's okay. All right? So, all right. So why does this refer to the end of the temple age? First is the context of what's happening. Jesus had just been in this debate with the religious leaders. He had pronounced woes upon them. He had pronounced woe upon Jerusalem. Then he symbolically leaves the temple to keep talking to his disciples only. The presence of God mimicking the same thing that happened with Ezekiel, leaving the temple, leaving Jerusalem. And then the disciples ask a two-part question. He's answering the first part. When will these things happen? That's the first reason. The second we can see in, say, verse 15. I'm not going to explain everything because I can't explain everything about verse 15, but let's just read it together. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, 
let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down and take anything out of the house. Okay, so the first thing is, what in the world is the abomination that causes desolation? Well, I'll tell you, let the reader understand, which doesn't help me either, okay? Like, I don't, oh, okay, well, that, that was meant to be a clue, and I, I'm not, uh, the reader doesn't understand, okay? Um, but here's what Jesus is saying. Something's going to happen in the Holy of Holies. The temple is going to be violated. It's going to be so violated as to be an abomination. Something that had happened before this time was that a, a Roman, another time, a Roman had come through and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Of course, a pig being an unclean animal uh, to the Jews. And a pagan sacrificing it to a pagan god on the altar. That was an abomination. That's an example. I don't know what historically Jesus was referring to, but the point I'm trying to make is that he was telling them, when you see it, you'll know it. Something's going to happen in the temple. When you see it, you'll know it. And when you see it, flee. Get out of Jerusalem because that's the time this is all going to go down. All right? When you see it, don't even go downstairs to get something. Run to the mountains. In Judea, did you see that reference again? So this is very, it's reference to the Old Testament temple, specifically the holy place, and to the nation of Israel, Judea. So this is clearly talking about the destruction of the temple, at least in this part of the passage. The next thing he does is, well, we're going to get to some of the time markers he puts in here. But notice how throughout he talks about false Christs arising. So, and this is very historic. As the Jews were under threat, all these people came out of the woodwork saying, I've got the solution. Follow me. We're going to go do this. We're going to go do this. And they were presenting themselves as messianic figures to deliver the people of God, the nation of Israel, from the Romans. Multiple people were, were doing this. Historically, this actually was happening. And Jesus said, hey, don't follow them. And then he contrasts his coming and what that's going to be like to this time by comparing it in verse 27 to lightning. You know, don't listen to people. The Messiah is in this secret room. He's like, listen, when I come back, you'll know it. Don't worry. Don't worry. All right. The lightning, it can flash all the way in the eastern part of the sky and you can see it from the western part of the sky. And so it is when I return on that day, everybody's going to know I'm back. Don't worry, you're not going to miss my return. So he's saying that as a contrast to the time that he's speaking of here. Right, right here, he's talking about, this ain't that time. There'll be all these false messiahs running around doing their thing. Don't follow them. I'm not, that's not my time to return. You'll know when that time is upon you. The other thing I would point to is just time markers throughout this passage there are time markers. Verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. Friends, commentators will twist this stuff so that immediately becomes 2,000 years later in order to fit this to be a reference to the coming of Christ, which you have to do if you're going to fit this to refer to the coming of Christ. But what Jesus is saying is immediately after the distress of those days, during the time of the temple falling. And then verse 30, at that time time. 
he says. All right, now, there's a lot in, in verse 32 and following uh, in terms of timing. He says this, Now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. All right, anybody look outside this morning on your drive-in? Everything is green. Everything's green everywhere. And you know what that means? Summer's coming. Right? Yay, that's right. That's good news. We all get that because we can open our eyes and we can see. You can look at the leaves and you can know that summer's coming. Well, just as surely, he tells his disciples, you can look at these things and know that the temple is about to be destroyed. That's what he's saying right here. It's a little parable to say, hey, you know how to figure out if summer's coming. I'm going to give you enough so that you can figure out when the temple's about to be destroyed. So learn the lesson from the fig tree. Its leaves get tender. You know when summer is near, verse 33. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So I'm giving you what you need in order to see what's going on. And then I think most compellingly of all of this is verse 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Again, this is one of those that you've got you've to turn this, this verse into pretzels if, if you're going to try to say this is referring to the second coming of Christ. I really, I, I struggle greatly to understand how you could say that that generation will not have passed away if he's talking about his own return right here. So, again, my argument is that he's referring throughout this section to the end of the temple. Now, I will also say, and we'll get to some of them, there are some verses that are challenging to that, and I'll tr- I'm not going to get to them all, all right? Uh, but we'll, we'll get to what we can. All right, final point on this is in verse 36 and on, which we're going to look at next week, he begins to talk about the second coming. He begins to talk about the end of the world. Remember they asked a two-part question? So he finally gets to the second part. And throughout the first part, he's been saying, immediately, at that time, you can see it. Watch, it's just like a fig tree. You'll know this is here. And then in verse 36, everything changes. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And he goes on and on through chapter 24 and chapter 25, giving parable after example after parable of how, friends, you won't know the time that Christ is returning. You won't know because no human knows. You won't know because he's not putting it in the Bible. You won't know because the angels don't know. And most decisively, you won't know because Jesus himself doesn't know. What? What? Not even the Son of God knows the timing of that. Only the Father knows that. That's a mystery right there to me. But as we consider that mystery, let's at least humble ourselves before it and say, we probably won't figure it out either. (laughs) So I'll just say that's very different what all of a sudden he's doing here from 36 and on. There's a mystery as to the timing of his second coming. And the church's job is not to figure it out. The church's job is to live in light of its reality and be prepared. That's the church's job. 
Not figure out what is hidden in the secrecy of God, but rather to live in the light of what he's given us, which is to say, be ready always for his return. That's next week. We'll get there. Okay. So what I've attempted to do is to lay out for you why I think this is talking about the end of the temple age. This helps us in two ways. First, it protects us from looking at this passage for clues about the timing of the Lord's second coming. When in fact, he just said, no one knows. I don't even know. If he doesn't know, he can't give clues as to the timing of his second coming. And it has been over times and at different places, the folly of the church. The folly of the church. To try to penetrate into the secret things of God, what he has chosen to not reveal. And so let us not abuse this passage by seeking to discern, well, is, has this happened? Has this happened? Because this, first of all, it's not what it's intended for and goes directly against the, the, the secrecy of God that only he knows. But secondly, this, this is a prophecy of the end of the temple, but it's also the prophecy of the beginning of the church. It's the end of one age, but it's the beginning of the other. And so it does have something to say to us because we live in that age. This is the age of the church. This you might call the age of the spirit where the ascended Christ has received a kingdom from his father, has received the Holy Spirit and has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people and upon his church. What this is talking about is the first 40 years of the age of the church, the 40 years they were going to live through, and we can learn from. We're not going to walk through those 40 years, but I can say, uh, there are some unique things. But our days are kind of similar too. It's the same age that we live in. It's the church age. So, now that we've kind of wrestled with the passage a little bit, if this describes the church age in a kind of general way, then what should we expect as we look at it? What should we expect to characterize this age that we live in? There's some distinctives about what they walked through, but there's some, a kind of type, a kind of pattern that we can certainly see and expect. So what, what should we expect and how should we react? How should we prepare? How should we react? So first, what should we expect? What's the church age look like? I think the first thing that jumps out is it is a time for trials. It's time for trials. Verse 5, many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Again in verse 24, false Christs, false prophets will appear, perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. There will be false Christs in the age of the church. There will be false prophets, those seeking to deceive. There will be world conflict. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and Russia against Ukraine. But the end is not yet. 
world conflict. There will be persecution, verse 9, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. That time many will turn away from the faith, will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's not a rosy picture that he's painting of the age of the church. It's a time for trials. There will be even the falling away of some who were thought to be Christians. Verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So as Christ gives them a window into the coming era, the age of the church, the age of the Spirit, He's letting them know, this ain't heaven. This is not the time of my return when I come back and set everything right. That day's coming, don't worry. That day's coming when the Lord returns and His kingdom is finally established and He makes all things right. Praise God, that day's coming. That's not today. I didn't need to tell you this. You already knew this, right? This is the era we live in. Um, it is a problematic world that we live in, and there is a, it is a time for trials. All right, it's a time for trials. What else should we expect? It's a time for triumphs as well. It's a time for triumphs. There are triumphs for God's people. Verse 13, after all these people turning away and their love growing cold, he says, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. <clears throat> Friends, there is salvation in the era of the church. There is salvation for mankind during this time of world history. And salvation is not going to be stopped by all these trials. Salvation's still going forward in the midst and during all of these trials. And God will keep his people by enabling them, as it says, to endure to the end. So there will be triumphs for God's people. There will be triumphs for God's gospel. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now you might be wondering when you hear that passage, wait, the whole world, did that happen before the temple? I'm going to say yes, I think it did in this sense. Um. I think that's what the book of Acts is about. The, the theme of the book of Acts is the gospel going forward from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And, and we see that accomplished within that very book. That doesn't mean that every human being heard the gospel. I don't think that that's required in the text at all. It does mean that the gospel was, broadly speaking, out to the entire earth no longer constrained to a people in a specific land called Israel. Now it's out. That's really what the Apostle Paul got to do, taking the gospel to the nation. So in one sense, I think, verse 14 was fulfilled in the Apostle Paul's work. He got the gospel to the nations. In another sense, though, we can say, yeah, that's kind of a theme verse, though, for us, isn't it? Like, we're still supposed to be about that. The gospel's still going forward even now. Indeed, it is. It is a triumph for God's gospel throughout 
the age of the church as it goes forward unstoppably, despite the trials, unstoppably to all nations. Triumph for the gospel is a triumph for God's grace. Verse 24 should encourage you. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles and deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So he, he describes a danger and he describes the keeping grace of God. That God will, through this time, keep his people. Those whom he has chosen, he's going to keep. He's going to keep them from falling and keep them from being, at the end, deceived. He will keep his people. And all these trials aren't greater than God's mighty hand. All right, the last triumph that we're going to look at is the triumph for God's Son, which is found in verses 30 and 31. Do we need like a stand and stretch break? We doing okay? This is a technical passage. There's a lot going on in this passage. And I can't explain verse 30 and 31 without referencing some Old Testament. So we're about to do that, but I'll read it again. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. If you're looking for this passage to talk about the second coming of Christ, I would start here. I think this would be the most obvious place, and yet I don't believe that's what it's talking about. And I might not convince you, but I'm going to try by having you turn to Daniel chapter 7. So put your thumb in here and look over to Daniel chapter 7. Because Jesus is knowingly and deliberately quoting from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, he knows that his original audience already knew this passage. They were looking forward to the Messiah. They knew their Messianic texts. We perhaps need a reminder. So we're going to look at Daniel 7, verse 13. As you're turning there, I'm just going to read again that Matthew 24, 30. So it's clear in our minds. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Here's what Daniel saw, Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Jesus clues them in that he's quoting this by calling himself the Son of Man. That's a clear reference back to Daniel. And Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. And of course, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. So he is clearly referencing this, right? So the the topic of Daniel is about the Son of Man. What happens? This is key, friends. You almost got this. What happens in the passage? What happens is that Daniel is, so to speak, in heaven observing, and into heaven from the clouds comes one that looks like a human being, that looks like a son of man, and yet he is welcomed into the presence of God, and he, a man, is given dominion and authority and a kingdom and glory, glory that should only be God's, but it's given to him. 
right? That's what's going on. So here's what I want you to see and wrestle with. As Daniel records this, the Son of Man's coming is coming to the Father. He's coming to heaven. That's clearly what it says. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. He came to heaven. This is the ascension that Daniel's seeing. Remember the ascension? The, the, the disciples are all gathered around, and they're, they're looking, and he's taken out of their sight with what? Clouds, friends, with clouds. Again, same reference point. So he's taken up out of their sight, and they lose sight. But Daniel didn't lose sight. Daniel, in the Spirit, saw this moment as Jesus finished ascending and comes into heaven and is given the kingdom that he just earned through his death on the cross. So, biblically, when we're looking at verse 30, and it says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. We tend to think out of our construct, that he's coming back to earth. That's not the historic reference. That's not what Daniel's saying. The coming of Christ that's being referred to is his coming to his father, his coming to his kingdom, his coming to his throne. This is enthronement language. This is Jesus saying in advance, I'm going to ascend and I'm going to sit on the throne as a human being and as God. And to me will be given all authority. So, I think, and I say that jokingly but humbly, I think that this is prophetic of Christ's ascension. And it's speaking as to what the ascension actually meant. That he was receiving as the Son of Man, the kingdom. And then what's he going to do with that power? What's he going to do with that authority? Well, he gives the spirit out on his church and he sends his church out into the world. Go proclaim the gospel. Let's go. Mission advance. And that's, you get the book of Acts all of a sudden, right? Now the gospel's in Judea and then Samaria and all of a sudden to the ends of the earth and, and his people are going and they're proclaiming. And why does it work? Why does it work? Because the risen Christ is giving power and I believe that's what verse 31 is talking about. He'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call, they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You thought we just sent out people as missionaries. But as we go to proclaim the gospel, the Lord sends spiritual power to accompany his people to build his kingdom. All right, so a time for trials and a time for triumphs. That's what we should expect. How should we react? How should we react? How, how, Lord, help me. What am I supposed to do with this? How is this supposed to help me live today? And all scripture is to help us live today. That's part of God's plan for it. I believe this is how we should react. It is a call to sober hope. A call to sober hope. It is a call to 
sober hope because this is a time of trials, because this is a time of difficulty, all kinds of worldly calamities and false Christs and false teaching and wars and rumors of wars and difficulties and persecution and sorrow and loss. This new age, this age of the church is an age in which the church is in danger, is under threat, is not obviously victorious as we would think of it. The church is in great difficulty in this age of the church. So let me ask you, does that affect your thinking? Does that give you what we might call a Christian sobriety about the way that you think about your life? When you wake up in the morning, are you aware of a kind of biblical outlook on the world in which we lived? Are your expectations tempered by the Scriptures, formed and informed by God's Word? So that the next time a preacher, God help us not from this pulpit, the next time a preacher preaches a message of health and wealth to the people of God in this age and says that God would have his people be the the head and not the tail. And if you're living in faith, you're going to live a victorious life. You're able to bring something to the game in terms of a Christian sobriety that's informed by God's word and says, wait a minute, no. Or the next time a politician promises, just elect me and I will make everything right. Or the next time a politician attempts to blame all the problems on that team over there and that person over there, well, they might not be helping, but they're not responsible for all the problems, clearly. Or the next time a movement sweeps through and they come and go and might sweep through again and promises some kind of utopia, be it communism or Nazism or socialism or nationalism with their intoxicating promises of heaven on earth, you've got something to cling to and to say, you know what? I don't think the earth is going to be better than Jesus said it would be. I'm going to go with him and not with you. Those promises are in talks. Who doesn't want heaven on earth? We all want heaven on earth. And Jesus is preparing us for reality so that our hope would be a sober, wise, grounded, rooted hope so that when false messiahs come with their promises of perfection and false prophets come up with their philosophies to deceive, we can stand. No, this is what he said. Christians, we should be a sober lot because we're listening to our king and he has our ears. So sober, yes, but it is a sober hope that we are called to, a sober hope. You know what's happening during all these trials? 
Jesus is reigning during all of these trials. That's what's happening. We're given the glimpse of the ascension, of the coronation, the heavenly coronation of King Jesus. Yes, the wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes, even the persecution, in the midst of all of that, still He reigns. And as the one who reigns, He is able to take even evil and bend it for the good purposes of His kingdom and His people, because He reigns. He has come to the Father, and what was given to Him? It was, it was put in His hand, and it is in His hand Right now, it is dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How easy is it to look around and think that Jesus must not have a plan? That God must not be sovereign? And yet, and friends, I'm not standing here and saying I, I, I can figure all this out. I am standing here and saying he said he'd be reigning and he said there'd be trials. Okay. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe both of those and I'm going to believe he reigns and there's trials, all right? That means he reigns over those trials. That means he can use those trials. That means I can trust him during those trials, because he reigns. There will be trials in the church age, but what we see in Matthew 24 is that the trials of the church age do not stop the triumphs of the church age. They're both. They're happening. There's triumphs going on. There's individual triumphs that you are kept by the king. You're kept by him. You're held by him. You're in his hands. Those that have put their faith in him. And there's hope for evangelism. Friends, that's, that's what we see in verse 31 as he sends his angels with that trumpet call, gathering his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Do you, do you hear the, the kind of Matthew 28 language of the Great Commission? Do you remember how he does this? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. And he sends his people out and we send missionaries out. Why do we send missionaries? What hope is there? in this world of trials, to send missionaries? What hope is there in this world of trials to spend our time praying that people would be saved in church, to, to evangelize others? Friends, our hope is that the king is on his throne and he's doing what he said he would do. And that when you go and evangelize, you go with angelic assistance and power. I think that's awesome. That is... I don't feel that personally when I'm out there, just so you know. But knowing that the ascended Christ is marshalling the resources of heaven to the aid of his people as they proclaim the gospel, that is good news. 
and should give you hope as you proclaim the gospel to your kids and to your neighbors, to your co-workers, and as we pray for our missionaries overseas. So this passage of hope, friends. Personal hope, my king will keep me through the trials. Missional hope, his mission will not end because of the trials. His mission will continue. You may, uh, by the way, have more questions on this passage. Uh, Chances are, if you do, you have more questions than I can answer on this passage, I will say. Um, But with a highly technical passage like this, you can only fit so much, and I fit plenty in the time that we've had. But if you've got more questions, I'd love to answer, and I, I could even point you to some other resources that I think would be really helpful. Let's stand and get ready to sing. Friends, I want, us, I want us to sing to our king with sobriety because we know that he's called us to endure in this dark world, but with hope, knowing that he is the king over all things, even in this world. So Lord, to you we sing. Would you receive our Praise, praise that is due to you as the King of all kings. In your name, amen.